Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we're bringing the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. What we talk about in restaurants is mise en place. Mise en place, mise en place, mise en place. Mise en place means everything ready when you need it. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting Wine Spectator's August 2023 issue. This is our big annual restaurant awards issue. We're spotlighting more than 3,500 of the world's best restaurant wine programs. And we'll also be joined in this episode by one of the most important chefs in the history of American cuisine, Thomas Keller. The August issue includes Senior Editor Christian Bieler's Provence Rosé Report and Tim Fish's California Zinfandel Report as well. Both outstanding categories to stock up on for those summer barbecues. And as always, we've got podcast director Rob Taylor manning the controls. Hello, Rob. Hello, James. So we've got a special podcast debut here today. We've got Wine Spectator Executive Editor Jeffrey Lindenmuth joining us. Hello, Jeffrey. Hey, James. Hey, Rob. Nice to be here. Now, you've been at Wine Spectator a whopping barely two years or so, Jeffrey. So you've got to introduce yourselves to our listeners here. Yeah, that's right. I joined Wine Spectator in uh, January of 2021. But prior to that, I did uh, log five years as executive editor for our sibling magazine, Whiskey Advocate. Well, we're happy to have you at Wine Spectator, Jeffrey, and we need you to tell us about this restaurant awards issue. We've got 3,500 plus restaurants in there. We divide it into three categories. Why don't you break it down for our listeners on the restaurant awards program? That's right. It's great to see so many restaurants excelling with their wine programs, especially after a few tough years with COVID. And the business has really bounced back. They're expected to do about $1 trillion in sales this year. And it's supported by consumers who just seem to love dining out. About 84% of consumers say they'd rather eat in a restaurant than cook and wash dishes. Count me among them. <laughs> and for our listeners who don't know, Jeffrey, tell us what it takes to earn one of the top awards from the program, the Grand Award. Well, these 93 restaurants usually have at least a thousand selections, and some have many more than that. Across that list, they show outstanding depth in mature vintages, a selection of large format bottles, and great choices to pair with the cuisine. They're also each visited and inspected by a senior editor who dines at the restaurant and then evaluates the level of wine service and the cellar. And we don't give out the Grand Award every year, and this is one of those years where we have no new Grand Award winners. Why is that? Well, we never feel obliged to give out grand awards. Some years there's a handful. Some years like this year, there are no new winners. And we also keep tabs on the existing winners. People sometimes drop off the list if they don't continue to meet our standards. Well, two of those existing winners are from Thomas Keller. We've got Per Se in New York and, of course, his flagship French Laundry in Yonville. Tell us what it was like working with Chef Thomas Keller on this cover package and what's going on with him these days. As you mentioned, Chef Thomas Keller is most associated with the French Laundry, which he opened in 1994. But he also continues to expand. He has a number of casual concepts, uh, Bouchon, Ad Hoc, and even a Mexican restaurant, Calenda. So while he's very associated with the pinnacle of fine dining in America, I also found him to just be a very accessible guy. And he gave you a recipe for us too, right? Yeah, that's right, Rob. He created a healthy menu for us, which you can find in the issue. It consists of a beet salad, salmon, and chocolate sorbet for dessert. And I also spoke with Keller for the podcast. We talked about his advice for home chefs, his take on recent trends in the restaurant industry, and some exciting new projects he has coming online. Well, let's take a listen to some excerpts from that interview now. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to the podcast, and welcome back to the cover of Wine Spectator. It's great to have you on our cover again, uh, which you last appeared on in 2010. 
It's great to be back. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's wonderful. We've certainly had much more experience than we did in 2010, much more underneath our belt, but we're really excited to be back. And uh, we've always appreciated the Wine Spectator and, and what Marvin's done with uh, with that whole publication and, and certainly have influenced the profession in countless ways. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. It, it is our, our annual restaurant issue. And you created a really beautiful and healthful menu for us. My wife and I made it at home, and uh, not only did we love the meal, but more importantly, I can honestly say it's that you, that you really changed the way we think about shopping for ingredients and about cooking. So maybe you can share with our listeners just some of the approach that you have and how cooking in a restaurant can help home chefs. Certainly, I, I think you know. First and foremost, I think is about the ingredients. Uh, and I've always talked about this. Um, cooking is is a very simple equation. It has two parts to it. It's ingredients and then execution. The ingredients are, are, are as paramount as the execution, but people's skill levels are much different. So we can't really identify the level of skill that somebody has at home. So that then in terms brings back the ingredients because if we, if we have the great ingredients to begin with, then we can figure out or learn how to uh, appreciate those ingredients and then actually produce something from them that are going to be very nutritious. Because what, what we want to be able to do is to deliver nutritious food to ourselves and to our families. And that's, that's key. And so when I think about going into a, a market or grocery store, what I'm looking for is really what piques my interest, what speaks to me, what are the vegetables mostly. Choosing vegetables is, is paramount in any of my menus. And, uh, you know, proteins are, are, are predictable and, and we can always choose great proteins, but vegetables really have to speak to me from a seasonality point of view. And seasons aren't always uh, summer, fall, winter, spring. Seasons are the vegetables themselves. Fava beans may only be around for three weeks. Asparagus may be only around for five weeks in, in, in its height of its perfection and, and its flavor and its, its, uh, its textures. So when I'm going into that grocery store, I'm looking for something that really speaks to me and has the value that we want to have from a nutritional point of view. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. And it, it really has changed the way my wife and I approach the produce section. You know, instead of going in with a list, we, we go in with a much more open mind, as you said, waiting for the produce to speak to us and see what it says. Now, what about the other part of the equation, the, the execution? You know, re- restaurants approach execution very differently. And that's something that I, I found in this menu, which actually makes it very appropriate for home entertaining. It, it almost makes it easier to entertain. Yeah. Well, we, we want, I mean, in a restaurant, we're teaching technique. We're, we're really teaching um, skill levels to our young, younger chefs. Um, and we want to make sure they understand those skill levels and, and the ability to execute it at, at that high level. Uh, for a home cook, it's, always, it's the same as well. And so what, what we think about when we talk about execution, we're always talking about, you know, certainly your skill level. You know, how do you hold a knife? How accurate are, are you with the ability to use that knife? How comfortable you are to use that knife? And then and then other piece, the piece of equipment, your cutting boards, your, your stoves, your, your cookware, all these different portions of that execution phase that come into, that, that impacts the quality of the execution. But the skill level is, is critical. Your ability to understand how to heat up a saute pan with the appropriate amount of oil to a temperature that is going to um, steer that piece of fish as you put it in there. 
actually laying in the piece of fish into into the saute pan so you're not dropping in and splattering something that may that may be dangerous for you uh, all these little key elements in ability to be comfortable with what we're doing with the products that we're doing it with and understanding those differences and many of them are just nuanced uh, as you know something else i noticed in making this menu at home was the prep started well in advance. There was a lot of preparation, but then the meal itself came together pretty quickly and pretty easily. Is that sort of borrowed from the restaurant strategy too? What we talk about in restaurants is mise en place, mise en place, mise en place, mise en place. Mise en place means everything ready when you need it. Um, so make, make sure when you're, you're shopping for your ingredients or you're developing your menu that you have everything ready when you need it. You're not trying to search for something at the last minute. Because um, that always will interrupt the flow of being able to execute at a high level or executing an appropriate amount of time so that when you're ready to serve the food, the food is ready to be served. So in addition to your, uh, your menu and your really excellent shopping and cooking tips, this issue also includes our annual restaurant awards. There's over 3,500 restaurants uh, with award-winning wine lists, and you are well represented on that list, um, specifically our highest award, the Grand Award, has been given to uh, the French Laundry and Per Se oh. here in New York. And uh, our Best of Award of Excellence is held at the Surf Club in Florida and uh, Bouchon in Yountville in Las Vegas. Tell me about the role that wine plays in your restaurants and the importance of wine in the dining experience. Yes, and wine is critical. You know, one of the things I love about being here in Napa Valley is that our food has to marry with the wine. We don't want to do food that is going to interrupt that opportunity to really enjoy wine and wine to enjoy with your food. So it's, it's, it's a real marriage between the two. And I think that's what we talk about when we talk about this, um, this approach to um, the relationship between wine and food. And wine is food when you think about it, right? Wine becomes part of your meal and accentuates the quality of the experience that you have. So wine is, is a critical part in what we do. And to be able to offer to our guests a wide variety of very dynamic wine lists, right? Not, not just from varietals, not just from countries, but also from a price point of view, that it gives them accessibility to experience wine um, with our food in a way that elevates the entire experience for our guests. There, there has been a lot of talk, especially with regard to fine dining. I see mm -hmm. uh, a lot of talk about the demise of fine dining and some people even saying, you know, fine dining just isn't sustainable for a variety of reasons. Is, is that something that you agree with? Well, it's interesting because, you know, in, in my career and in my experience, I've seen the demise of fine dining at least three different times, um, you know, with economic <laughs> crafts or, or COVID or, or, or whatever. But let's remember when fine dining began, fine dining began, you know, after the French Revolution, when all of the great chefs of the courts went out to open restaurants because they're no longer did they did they have the aristocracy to cook for as they did before. And fine dining has been through world wars, has been through economic change, has been through pandemics before as well. And fine dining always seems to prevail. And I don't think it's any different than, than, than it was then as it is now. Um, I'm not sure why there is always a point of contention around fine dining when it's just an experience around food around wine, and most importantly, you know, the social interaction between the guests at, at, at the table and being able to celebrate in that way 
uh, and have these fond memories that are established through any experience around the table, whether it's fine dining or casual dining. So for me, um, the sustainability of fine dining is certainly, from a historical point of view, um, has been very strong uh, and has survived so many different points in time, as well as any, every kind of dining. Um, so I don't think that one type of dining is more or less relevant than any other type of dining today than it was before. You're perhaps best known for fine dining um, with the French Laundry and, and per se, but you do have you know a nice spectrum of, of options where people can enjoy your style of cooking at different price points, more casual places. And, and you're actually still expanding, I understand. Maybe we can get a little glimpse of what's happening. I know uh, you're looking at Florida for uh, uh, Bouchon and Coral Gables and also another venture in Palm Beach. Can you tell us anything, what you're thinking there? Sure. I mean, just, you know, just touching on the, the diversity uh, of, of dining here in Yonfa, where I live, um, you know, we have a Mexican restaurant, which, you know, probably has the least uh, expensive check average, you know, in our group, which is under under $50. And then, of course, we have something like the French audience and everything in between. And, and that, to me, is really important that we have these opportunities and options for dining you know, wherever we want to have that type of experience. As it relates to, you know, our future endeavors and, and, and leveraging our, our portfolio, Yes, we have uh, the Surf Club in Surfside, which is in South Florida, which is a continental cuisine restaurant, um, which is something I'm very, very proud of. And something, again, that touches home to me, because when I was growing up in our profession, my mother was, a, was ran restaurants. Continental cuisine restaurants were the restaurants of the time. And now we have, of course, in Coral Gables, as you mentioned, we're opening in Bouchon. Uh, and then in Palm Beach, uh, we've taken over the, a space formerly known as Taboo, um, which is a restaurant that I used to go to as a young adult. I, you know, I grew up in Palm Beach, and so being able to be there and, and actually having the opportunity to to reestablish the next era for Taboo is very exciting for me. Well, thanks for sharing that, Thomas. That's great. And um, thanks again for this menu in the August issue. Just in, in preparing that menu and the little bit of time that I've had to share with you, it really has impacted the way I cook at home and think about food um, so I, I hope that our readers will will take that away, too. You're incredibly talented and incredibly humble at the same time. And uh, we, we really appreciate you sharing your, your insight with us. Thank you. You're welcome, Jeff. We appreciate it. And, and, and we've been able to work together for the past several months. And at every moment, you're, you're challenging me and we're coming up with the proper technique and solution for anything that may be challenging for the home cook. And I believe we have hit on a real winner. So thank you. So, of course, chefs think about recipes differently from us, and it must be daunting, Jeffrey, to get a recipe from a chef like Thomas Keller and then take it home and try it. But you actually found it, it was an easy one to handle. Yeah, you know, part of his strategy is doing a lot of prep work ahead of time. So even uh, my 10-year-old son was able to pitch in and help plate the final dishes and garnish them. Well, thanks for that, Jeffrey, and thanks for joining us again here on Straight Talk. Great to be here. Thank you. And Rob, what do we have coming up next? Up next... Wine Spectator Senior Editor for News, Mitch Frank, is joining us to talk about, well, what else? The news. James, I believe that brief musical interlude means that our next guest is here. He is indeed, Rob. Let's welcome back Senior Editor for News, Mitch Frank. How you doing, Mitch? Hey, guys. Um, why don't I get musical interludes from Jim's impressive record collection? Some, you know, like Marvin Gaye or Coltrane or Aretha? 
there might be some licensing issues with that. I don't know. We're going to have to have Rob research that, but then we can get you your walk-up music if that's what you really want. James, thank you for not making me be the one to say that. <laughs> I want Why Can't We Be Friends uh, to play as I walk up. I've got that on vinyl. We can do that. Listen, we've been talking about our restaurant awards issue all episode, and we're not going to stop now. So you worked on that cover story, of course, before like really digging into the state of the hospitality and restaurant industry. I'm guessing when you started researching this, you were expecting a mix of good and bad news. What did you find? More good news than bad, which I found really comforting. We, we've been covering the restaurant industry, how it was dealing with the pandemic and how it's been recovering. And we found that it's recovering uh, faster than I would have expected, although obviously there's still some growing pains. Uh, in addition to recognizing the world's top restaurants for wine, we talked to restaurateurs on how they're doing our customers coming back. And one thing we found was that people are dining out and people are dining out in as great numbers as they were before the pandemic. So you remember ghost kitchens. The idea is basically you don't need an actual restaurant. You have a kitchen and a rented space somewhere. Maybe you have four or five different restaurants all in one big kitchen. And you can only order from them through delivery apps like DoorDash. And during the pandemic, technology made it increasingly easy to dine without grappling with pesky things like other people. You could order dinner and drinks from an app on your phone from a ghost kitchen you had never actually set foot in and have it delivered by a driver who rings the bell and leaves. Now, many ghost kitchen companies are reporting that they're struggling. It turns out that being with other people is still a major reason we go out to eat. Well, I've definitely noticed that in restaurants. There's bigger parties now at tables. They're definitely more crowded, and, and the, the energy is back. I remember, though, during the, the peak of COVID, one of the, the toughest things that restaurants had to deal with, and they had to deal with a lot, was staffing. They really just couldn't find staffing. Since COVID has waned, I'm hearing they can't find good staffing, but it's not as intense trying to find people. What did you hear? It's improving. I, I remember, too, in the first few months after places started reopening, I dined at a grand award winner that only had about 60% of its pre-pandemic staff. And they were finding it very hard to keep the kitchen going, keep the level of service, what diners expect. Uh, they did a raw job. But, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of restaurant workers found jobs in other fields. They found better pay, easier hours. Now that the job market is stabilizing overall, a lot of them are coming back and many other employees are finding the restaurant industry. So it's starting to stabilize. It helps the restaurant wages are going up. And the National Restaurant Association expects restaurant staffing to exceed pre-pandemic levels this year. Well, that is optimistic news. Let's talk about another potential bugaboo, inflation, which was you know creeping up on 10% there not too long ago. It's cooled off somewhat, but how's that affecting the restaurant business these days? Yeah, it was a shocker to go into places and discover that all the entrees had gone up by $10. You know, inflation has been a big hangover. But, you know, on the one hand, restaurants can't help it. Like we mentioned, you have to raise wages. You have to offer, you know, decent salaries. Plus, the cost of eggs, meat, and many other ingredients were doubling. Grocery prices are up even more than restaurant prices, though, believe it or not. And so that has helped restaurants continue to draw people in who also see the added value of the social interaction. And wine uh, continues to be a prime way for restaurants to set themselves apart and draw customers in. A lot of the sommeliers we spoke to are really mixing up their lists and trying new things. 
They're either offering new regions or grape varieties. They're trying organic wine or wines that they just, you know, weren't getting a lot of questions asking for a few years ago. And they're also putting a lot more into training, making sure that everyone on their staff can answer diners' wine questions. Well, it sounds like dining out is back in, which is good news. And again, everyone can check up on all that in the current Restaurant Awards issue that's out. Let's shift to some uh, sad news from Bordeaux, though, where a legend passed away recently, Jean-Michel Caz. He helped drive Bordeaux's enotourism at a time when Bordeaux was anything but a tourist destination. And as the owner of Lynchbage and Poyac, he was also a, you know, a quality producer who really helped drive the wine scene in general in Bordeaux. I knew him, as did you. Tell our listeners a, a little bit about what made Jean-Michel Caz such a special person in the wine industry. He really will be missed. Um, Jean-Michel had been ill for several months now, uh, passed away recently. And I, I remember I met him on my very first trip to Bordeaux 15 years ago when uh, I knew, you know, very little about the region. And he greeted me uh, like a tour guide and showed me around. And he really just had a way of making everyone feel welcome and at ease. The other thing is most people don't know today. They can't imagine, especially since we just had this futures campaign with wine prices going up, that Bordeaux was in a really bad situation when Jean-Michel took over Lynch Bage in 1973. The wine industry still hadn't really recovered from the Great Depression and World War II. Cause was part of the big change. He pushed for higher quality wines. And more than that, he went out and marketed both his wines and his region to the world. He pushed for tourism. He pushed for getting his wine on airplanes. Most Chateau owners were happy to let the negociants market their wine. Jean-Michel knew that that wasn't good enough when you're suddenly competing against places like Napa and uh, younger regions like in Spain. He knew that you had to work harder. Yeah, he really appreciated that connection between the the producer and the end consumer. Uh, and Bordeaux has never really been good at that. And he was really one who helped drive that and enotourism. And he, he sort of copied the, the Napa model, if you were. He may have even helped create the Napa model. The other thing he did was he created the town of Baj, which was is a tiny hamlet up in Poyac, but had been mostly abandoned. And as he rejuvenated his own winery properties, he rebuilt that town back up, put in a restaurant, which today is one of the most popular lunch spots in the upper Medoc, and turned it into a thriving community at the same time. Yeah, he really took pride in accomplishing that because it was this this quiet town that had become boarded up. He also opened the luxury hotel Cordeon Baj so that people had someplace to stay in the Medoc. He explained it to me. It wasn't just a question of attracting visitors, though. He wanted the people who worked at his winery to be able to walk to work. This tiny town had been abandoned and everyone was commuting, and he wanted them to be able to be a community again. Mitch, thanks for joining us again today. I'm sure we're going to see you soon. Yeah, I hope so. Always good seeing you, and thank you to both of you. And now to Rob, who's got a case of corkage fever and needs to go to the doctor. Is that correct, Rob? James, I feel like that's a HIPAA violation. (laughs) Paging Dr. Vinny. Paging Dr. Vinny. Code Rouge in the podcast studio. It's time now to welcome back the doctor that everyone wants to visit. Yes, that's right. It's time for Ask Dr. Vinny. (laughs) Thank you for that intro, Rob. That's nice. Dr. Vinny, we had a great chat about party etiquette last time, so I thought we'd keep the topic on etiquette, but change venues. Oh. This one comes from Brett in Florida. Hi, Brett. Dear Dr. Vinny, I often bring my own expensive wine to dinner at restaurants and pay the corkage fee if applicable. 
my wife thinks that when we're dining with others, we're obligated to share that wine we brought. But I disagree. What does the doctor say? Um, ouch. Um, <laughs> I'm siding with your wife on this one. I, I think that sharing is a central part of social interactions. If you refuse to share your wine with someone, you're basically saying that your friends are not worth the price of that expensive wine. I mean, Rob, how would you feel if I opened a bottle of wine and just drank it in front of you without offering you a taste? Sharing is caring. You got to share. Yeah. I don't think there's too many gray areas here. Yeah. I, again, I think a lot of awkward social interactions can be managed by setting expectations ahead of time. So if you plan on bringing a bottle of wine that you're not sharing, you should probably say to your friend, hey, I'm going to be bringing a special bottle of wine to this restaurant. You know, do you have anything you'd like to bring as well? And then maybe give them a chance to do the same thing back to you. But I really think that I would never bring a bottle of wine to dinner that I wasn't intending to share. But Brett mentioned corkage. Now, that is a whole mm. barrel of etiquette. Want to explain for our listeners what corkage is? Yeah, absolutely. So usually you don't bring your own food to a restaurant. So bringing <laughs> wine to a restaurant is a special type of privilege that not every restaurant offers, and they're allowed to do that. But sometimes you might have like an older bottle of wine or their wine list is really small and you want to bring something to enjoy with the meal. So some uh, restaurants offer a corkage service, which means that they allow you to bring a bottle of wine in. There's often a cost associated with it. Sometimes there's other rules too, like no more than, you know, two bottles per group of six or that you have to order something off their wine list first before you can bring a bottle in. It's a courtesy and we should treat it as such. I always recommend calling ahead first, even if it's on their website, just talking to someone and saying, hey, I'm thinking about bringing some wines in, find out what their rules are. And then if it's an appropriate situation to offer a taste to the server or the sommelier who's there, especially if it's kind of a rare bottle of wine, not every restaurant will allow the server or some to um, partake of the wine, but I think it's a nice gesture or just leave some in the bottle um, before you leave. But truly treat it as a very nice thing the restaurant is doing to you. And please do not abuse this policy. And yeah, just be cool about it, man. Yeah. When you open a bottle, be prepared to share. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For more of Dr. Vinny's free advice, check out her weekly Q&As at Wine Spectator's website and email us your questions to straighttalk at winespectator.com. Yeah, please do. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. Thank you, Dr. Vinny. Have a great day. You too. James, I'd imagine you've brought a bottle of wine to a restaurant on more than one occasion. What's your strategy? Well, my strategy is to follow what Dr. Vinny said, because Dr. Vinny nailed it. Always call ahead and offer your server a taste. It'll go a long way towards uh, enhancing your enjoyment of, of your wine at that meal. Well, I said it last episode, James is a great dinner party guest. I can also confirm he is a great dinner companion if you're dining out. I can also tell you what's coming up next. We've got lots to look forward to, James, especially for you. In episode 12, we'll be talking California Pinot Noir with none other than our lead taster for California Pinot Noir, James Molesworth. And I trust he'll line up a guest or two between now and then. I'm ruminating, ruminating who I'm going to bring in, but we're going to have fun. And until then, our listeners can email us their questions or just drop us a line at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow Wine Spectator on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. 
Now, hurry up with the bonus wine pick. We're running out of time. My sneak peek wine pick is the Burgess Cellars Cabernet Sauvignon Napa Valley Contadina 2017. Now, this is a winery that's got a long history, but it was purchased by the Lawrence family a couple years ago, and then it burned down in the 2020 fires. And new winemaker and director there, Megan Zobeck, she has yet to fashion her wines into bottle. That starts with the 2021 vintage. But they've got some older inventory that they're pushing out, and they're doing a nice job in repackaging it. And the 2017 Contadina blend is a mix of Cabernet, Malbec, and Petit Bordeaux. It's in a pretty fruit-forward style, but as Burgess is essentially in the Howell Mountain AVA, it's also got a little bit of that rugged, tarry spine to it and that, that nice, dark, tarry-edged fruit. And at 70 bucks, it's one of the good deals in California Cab. 89 points. That's the Burgess Cellars Cabernet Sauvignon Napa Valley Contadina 2017. Now, James, you said Burgess is owned by the Lawrence family. That means its sister wineries are? That means it's in the same group along with Stony Hill and Heights and the new Haynes Vineyard and Inkgrade, among others. So keeping good company. Yeah, I didn't know I was going to be quizzed, so I was, I'm glad I was ready for that. <laughs> Take us out, please. Thanks for joining us on Straight Talk. I'm James Molesworth, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs>